So again, I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, and then moving on to chapter 11, verses 23 through 34. This is printed on page 12 in your worship guides, and at this time, if you're willing and able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. As I go to read, I would remind you that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God does indeed endure forever. Hear the word of the Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then moving on to chapter 11, starting at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are a guest with us this morning, or this may be your first time here, uh, I would let you know, as the rest of our, our church family probably generally knows this, but it's our normal practice, our normal habit, to preach through books of the Bible. Uh, one book at a time. And we generally alternate between the New Testament and the Old Testament. I think some of you have heard my plan is to, uh, our next series to be through the book of Daniel. But right now we're in kind of in between and we're in this topical study. And today is our third week in a mini-series on what we call the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace are the gifts that God has given to his people to help them grow in and enjoy their relationship with him. They're simply the normal ways that God works in our lives to help us be more like his son, Jesus Christ. And here at Proclamation, uh, we stand on the word of God, and then we also uh, view some of the documents that have been produced throughout the history of the church as good summaries of the scriptures. So one of those documents is the Westminster Confession of Faith, along with the larger and shorter catechism, a series of questions and answers that simply explain what the Bible teaches. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that these ordinary means of grace are especially the word, sacraments, and prayer. And so in our first sermon in this series, we considered the word of God. And we saw that the Bible, the word of God, is God's appointed means to reveal his glory. He shows us who he is in the pages of the scriptures. The scriptures are God's appointed means 
and to sanctify his people, to bring us into a relationship with God and then to help us grow in that relationship. Last week, we considered prayer. And we said that prayer is not primarily an activity we do, though it is that, but primarily it's a relationship we enjoy. And that through Christ, we are now invited in to enjoy this relationship that Jesus has always enjoyed with his Father. Jesus brings us into the fellowship and the love of the family. And so today, we now consider the Lord's Supper. It is one of two sacraments that God has given to his church today, the other one being baptism. But for this sermon series, I am not planning to preach a separate sermon on baptism. And the reason for that is, here at Proclamation, it's our great privilege to regularly baptize our covenant children. And every time we do throughout the year, I preach, you might think, a mini-sermon on baptism. In fact, I remember one time one of our members had a guest or a friend, a neighbor maybe with them, and I was encouraged to hear our members say to them, hey, baptism today, you get two sermons for the price of one. So I appreciate that attitude. But today, we'll focus on the Lord's Supper. And to help us look at it, I'll once again ask a series of questions, five questions today. First, what is a sacrament? What is the Lord's Supper? What happens in the Lord's Supper? Who may partake of the Lord's Supper? And then finally, how do I partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? So let's begin. First question, what is a sacrament? The Westminster Confession of Faith says that sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Signs and seals of the covenant of grace. So let's consider those two descriptive words, signs and seals. Signs are visible markers that point to something else. And we use signs every day. So you, if you see a sign that says, bridge out ahead, that sign could save your life. If you see a sign like I did or back in the fall at the Turkey Hill that was right across the street from where we're living and it says, free coffee every Friday, that sign can bring a blessing into your life, which it did for me every Friday. Signs are visible markers that point to something else. Now, you all who have the gift of sight, you have probably seen one of these signs that God has given to us, his people. After a rainfall, right? You look up in the sky, and what do you sometimes see? A rainbow, exactly. The rainbow is actually a sign from God. He gave it to us to confirm his covenant promise that never again would he flood the whole earth. God tells us about this in the Bible in Genesis chapter 9. It says this, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So God created the rainbow. He gave us the gift of the rainbow as a sign, a reminder of his promise, of his faithfulness, as a reminder actually of God's judgment and salvation. So what should we do every time we see a rainbow? Every time you see a rainbow, yes, 
enjoy the beauty of the remember of the rainbow, but also remember its main purpose to remind us of our great God, of his covenant promise and of his faithfulness. And so every time you see it, you can say, you can pray, thank you, God. Thank you for saving me from your righteous judgment through the death of your son. Every time you see a rainbow, you can confess, not like the Pharisee, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other sinners, but instead, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me, by the grace of your Holy Spirit, to walk in newness of life, to fear you and keep your commandments today. The rainbow is not a sacrament, but like the sacraments, it is a visible sign of God's covenant. So that's what sacraments are. They, they are a visible sign of God's covenant of grace. They are also a seal of God's covenant. At the time when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, seals were often made of wax with a stamped imprint to confirm someone's identity. And these official documents at the time would often bear this seal. It would be placed on the document so that the seal would confirm the identity of the one who was sending the document, the one who was the owner of the document. And they also would secure the contents. You dare not break that seal unless you were the one who was supposed to do so. So it sealed it. It identified the owner and it confirmed the recipient. In the same way, God's covenant signs both confirm our identity as those who belong to God and they secure our membership in that covenant. We might think of the symbolism of a a wedding ring, right? Biblical marriage is a covenant and the wedding ring is a sign, a seal of that covenant. So the rings that a married couple wears on their fingers, it confirms and and proclaims both their love for and also their commitment to one another. So the ring I wear marks me off as belonging to my wife. It confirms my promise to be faithful to her as long as we both shall live. The Lord's Supper as a sacrament instituted by Christ as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, it does more than a wedding ring does, but not less does more but not less. God's sacraments do confirm and proclaim his promises to us. And as they do that, they actually, they truly do assure and strengthen us in our relationship with God. God is at work in them and through them to strengthen our faith. We'll talk more about that later. So what is a sacrament? A sacrament is a sign and seal of God's covenant of grace. Now, what is the Lord's Supper in particular? Westminster Shorter Catechism 96 answers that question for us when it says this, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth. That's just the first part of the answer. But I want to focus on that last phrase for a moment. His death is showed forth. One of the key things to remember to help us understand what the Lord's Supper is all about is to observe that Jesus instituted it during the Passover feast. And he did so to help us understand why he would die and what his death would accomplish. Matthew tells us that it was as the disciples were eating the Passover meal 
that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Justin read that passage for us earlier this morning. So the disciples were in the middle, they were in the middle of eating a meal designed to help them remember how God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt when Jesus spoke the words of institution. I want us to think about that for a moment. What they were actually doing when Jesus first instituted the Lord's Supper. Imagine it. I think it's a little something like if later in the service today, right as I'm standing there at the table and I'm saying the words... For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Imagine if right at that moment you heard the trumpet sound and Jesus returned. How awesome would that be? Where's Mike? Don't play the trumpet during that time this morning. But how awesome would that be? Imagine it. But that is something like What happened when Jesus first instituted the Lord's Supper? He, right in their midst, he's fulfilling a promise and he's also pointing to another. They're in the middle of eating this meal where they remember that first Passover meal. God told his people to kill that spotless lamb, to place its blood on their doorposts and the blood would be a sign that they belonged to God. God had told them, I'm going to deliver you from your slavery to the Egyptians. And here's what I'm going to do. You, you place that blood on the doorpost. It's a sign you belong to me, and I will keep you safe from this final plague that I'm bringing upon Egypt. I will rescue you from judgment. The lamb would die, and the people would be saved by its blood. And later on in that memorial, they would also be fed by its meat in the meal. So as they are remembering this, as they are celebrating the Passover feast, Jesus changes the script on them a little bit. He uses different words in the liturgy. He says, this is my body, which is for you. And then the very next day, he will offer up his body to death on the cross. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For what? For the forgiveness of sins. And the next day, it would not be the blood of a spotless animal that would be shed, but it would be his own precious blood shed on the cross. And so Peter, who was there at that first meal, would later remember and understand and write and encourage us when he said, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Jesus shed his blood to save his people from their sins. That is why he died. God's wrath on our sin would be poured out on his own son. And beloved friends here this morning, your sin must be paid for. Either you can die for it, or it can be paid for in the death of Jesus Christ in your place. Just like that first Passover, if you didn't put blood on the doorpost, what would happen? There would be a death in the home. Either death comes to you, 
or the lamb dies in your place. And that is what the Lord's Supper is all about. Jesus, the true lamb of God who dies to take away the sin of the world. So the Lord's Supper is a sign and a seal of the death of Jesus and all that accomplished on behalf of his people. It is a reminder, but it's much more than just a reminder. Beloved, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you identify yourself as one who belongs to Jesus and you really do fellowship with him in his death and in his resurrection. There's another catechism, one that we don't use, but there's another catechism that describes the Lord's Supper in these terms. It says it is the source and the summit of the Christian life. The Lord's Supper is the source and summit of the Christian life. Now that might sound too high and exalted for us. But I was thinking about that this week. And actually uh, uh, one of the professors, I think it was either Covenant Seminary or Reformed Theological Seminary, I was listening to a class on the Lord's Supper and and he brought that out. And as he explained it, it, and as I understood what it meant, I thought that's actually a great way to think about the Lord's Supper as the source and summit of the Christian life. Now, some of you may know, that comes from the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. And there are many areas in which we disagree with the Roman Catholic Church, in theology in general, and even in particular, in specifics about the Lord's Supper. But here, I believe, we can agree. The Lord's Supper is the source and summit of the Christian life. I admit we might not mean the exact same things by that phrase, but let me explain to you what I understand it to mean. In the Lord's Supper, we meet the Lord Jesus himself. We see and smell and touch and taste his death on the cross, his redeeming, atoning work, the source of the Christian life. There is no Christian life apart from the death of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So in that sense, the Lord's Supper is the source of of the Christian life as it points us to the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf and as we fellowship with him in that death. But it's also the summit of the Christian life, the high point, the goal. The last few weeks, I have started this sermon series by saying that every believer in Jesus Christ all over the world shares a common goal, right? Our common goal is we want to be more and more like Jesus. We want to grow in our walk with Jesus. But that's not our only goal. It's not our only goal. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God. And we glorify God by becoming more and more like his son. But that's not where the answer ends, is it? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and, that's right, to enjoy him forever. So the summit of the Christian life is to know and enjoy God. It's to enjoy communion with the triune God. And that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. Communion with the Father through the Son, through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit right here through these ordinary elements of bread and wine. And so this brings us to our next question, what happens in the Lord's Supper? 
What happens as we actually partake of this sacrament? In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes these profound words. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And that word for participation means intimate fellowship. Paul uses the very same word at the very beginning of his letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. He says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship, the participation of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, beloved, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we enjoy a meal with Jesus. Think of that. A meal with Jesus, where he is the host, and he has spread the feast, and he invites us into his home, into his kingdom, to eat with him. Now, in the times when the Bible was written, eating a meal together was an expression of intimacy, intimate fellowship. I think there's still a sense in which that is true even today. But in this meal with Jesus, we enjoy the love of our Savior. And we truly do in a real way, a spiritual way, not a physical way, but in a real spiritual way, we do commune with Christ and we feed on Christ. Now, certainly not the actual body and blood of Christ. There's no change to these elements. And that is one, where, one place where we would differ significantly from the Roman Catholic Church. We believe that the glorified body, the glorified human body of our Savior Jesus Christ is exalted to heaven right now. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he does not come down bodily to us, but in this mysterious way, we are lifted up to him. And he is present right now here with us by his spirit. And so just as our physical bodies are indeed nourished by the physical food and drink, Our spiritual bodies, our spiritual lives are truly and really nourished by the body and blood of Christ as we feed on him by faith. So think of it, as we partake, is the bread real? Do you eat it? Do you put it in your mouth? Do you feel it? Do you smell it? Do you taste it? Is it real? Yes, indeed it is. Is the cup real? Do you drink it? Do you put it in your mouth and feel it and smell it and taste it? Yes, indeed, it is real. It's tangible. Just as real, Jesus nourishes and strengthens our souls. He strengthens our faith to trust him and to obey him. Just as real. This is a, it's a great gift from our God to us to bless his people and help us grow. Because he's given us these tangible elements. And he's saying, just as real as you can see them and touch them and taste them, just as real. Jesus lived and died and shed his blood for you. And he rose again in your place. And there's no more condemnation, no more punishment, no more wrath of God for those who trust in Jesus, those who feed on him. He's saying, you indeed are forgiven. You are one with him. You are his. You will see him and be with him forever. And so as we come to the table, we please the Father. 
We are obeying our Savior. We receive the love of the Son and we love him in return. And we proclaim and the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We belong to Jesus. I am his and he is mine. Amen? This is what is happening in the table of the Lord as Jesus indeed is present with us through his Spirit. We commune with him. We walk by faith but he's also given us the sight, the sight of the elements. Well, we also commune with one another, not only with our Savior, but also with our brothers and sisters in Christ. First Corinthians 10 goes on to say, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, the Passover was a family meal. You partook of it with your family, but who did Jesus eat it with? He ate it with his disciples. He was expanding our understanding of what it means to be family. And that's why I'll often say as we come to take the Lord's Supper that this is a family meal. And that we are one body. We are family. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim we are the family of God. And we enjoy the communion of the saints. God is owning us as his people in this meal. Saying, you are my children. And we are owning him as our God. He is our God. And so in the Lord's Supper, we do indeed enjoy communion with Jesus and communion with one another. And we also proclaim our faith and our exclusive devotion to Jesus Christ. We say he is our king and Lord. And we want to follow and obey him. And so it is only repentant believers who may partake of the Lord's Supper. Those who are living a life of daily repentance and faith. This answers our fourth question. Who may partake of the Lord's Supper? Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 11 that there were some in the church who were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so they actually were eating and drinking judgment on themselves. This is a serious warning that we must heed. As Paul says, there's actually a way you can partake of this which is not good. We want to be aware of that. We want to avoid that. It's one reason why we don't admit our children to the table like we do in baptism before they could really understand what's happening. But we don't, don't do that with the Lord's Supper until our children would make an age-appropriate profession of faith, until they have an understanding of what we're doing and of what Jesus has done for them on the cross. So again, who can partake? Those who have trusted in Christ, and as an expression of their trust in Christ, they have been baptized, and they have made that profession of faith before a body of believers, and they are currently actively living a life of repentance and faith. Now, most times when I administer the supper, I am encouraging you to come. And I will continue to do that. But there are times when believers should not partake of the Lord's Supper. There are times when genuine, true believers in Christ should not partake of the Lord's Supper. If you are living in sin and you know it and you refuse to repent, 
And in fact, you know you are going to continue in that sin. You don't just know it, but you're planning to continue in that sin. That would be a time when it would be better for you to not partake of the Lord's Supper. But instead, to be honest about your sin and cry out to the Lord to change your heart, to lead you to genuine repentance. And perhaps talk to a friend or an elder who can pray with you and encourage you towards that end. So if that's the case for you today, you are in sin and you know it and you have no plans to turn from it whatsoever, then we would urge you to not come to the table, but again, go to the Lord and deal with that and acknowledge that and repent. But on the other hand, there are also times when believers who are discouraged who are defeated in their fight against sin and who may feel unworthy. Nevertheless, they should partake of the Lord's Supper. And I would say those times happen every week, every Sunday. You may feel discouraged and defeated. You may feel unworthy. You may have sinned horribly in your mind, but you are repentant. You know it is sin. You are sorry for that sin. You've expressed that to the Lord. Then come to the table. That's why we have it. Because Jesus wants to strengthen you in your faith and to assure you once again of his love for you. And that you come not because of your righteousness or obedience, but because of his. Think of it. To stay away from his invitation because you feel unworthy is actually a denial of the gospel. Because what are we saying if we do that? What we're saying is actually this. Jesus Christ is not a sufficient offering to bring us into the presence of God. Instead of trusting in what Christ is doing, I have these feelings of unworthiness and often we get into this good day, bad day living. And so we say, before I can come to the table, I need to string together a better record. Let me get a few good days together before I come. Let me get a few good weeks together before I come. Let me at least have one moment where I'm victorious in this fight against sin before I come. And if that's how we think, what are we believing? What are we basing our invitation to the table on? No longer the sufficient, finished work of Christ, but now... Our obedience. And that's not what the table is about. The table is where your Savior says, come. I know you sin. He knows all our sin. I know your heart. I know your weakness. And I'm giving you this meal to help you. That you will know I love you and you'll be strengthened to obey you. So what you actually need in that moment is to come because it's the strength you need to walk in obedience. Not your own resolve, but the blessing of Christ. Beloved, the table is for all who belong to Jesus, who today, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, are living a life of repentance and faith. So this brings us to our last question. How do I partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? Or very simply, what do I do during the Lord's Supper? What should we do? And I want to encourage, I want to close just by encouraging you to look in four directions as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. 
We can look in four different directions. We can do this each week leading up to it and then in the actual partaking of it. So first of all, look in. It's appropriate for us to look in and to examine ourselves. Perhaps join the psalmist in a simple prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked, grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We are simply saying, Father, show us, show me my sin and lead me to repentance. So look in and repent. Second, look back. Look back. The Lord's Supper is a remembrance of the death of Christ. So look back and see the cross where your Savior died. Remember what Christ has done. Look back and believe once again that all your sins were paid for on the cross and rejoice. So look back to the work of your Savior on the cross. Then look up. Look up. Why? Because Jesus is no longer on the cross, is he? He is risen. He's exalted, enthroned in heaven. He is the living, reigning host of this meal. And so look up and receive the food from him, your risen, exalted Savior. Feed on him and know that he is coming again. Look up and rejoice and renew your obedience. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was also at this meal, when the Lord first instituted it. In 1 John chapter 3, he wrote that all of us are going to see Christ and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as Christ is pure. So as you look up and you consider and remember your exalted, risen, reigning Savior, that compels you to walk forward in new obedience out of your love for him. So look up. And renew your love and obedience. And then finally, look around. Look around and see your brothers and sisters in Christ. Beloved, look around and see your family. Look around and see those for whom Christ died. The saints who are precious in his sight. Today, as we come forward, this is one of the reasons why I think it is significant that at times we come forward to, to receive the Lord's Supper so that we can see the body of Christ together. Look around and see the disciples whom Jesus loves and love them as Christ has loved you. Love them as Christ loves them. Jesus has made us into a new family, and this is our family. And so, beloved, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus invites us to have a meal with him. He is the host. He's inviting us into his home, into his kingdom. He paid the great cost to prepare this table, to spread the feast, the price of his own blood. He showed God's love for you when you were his enemy and he willingly and freely died in your place. His redeeming work has been done. Your sin is atoned for. It is removed. It is taken care of. It is out of the way. No more barrier. So now you can enter into the joy of your father, the fellowship of your savior through the abiding presence of his spirit. The Lord's Supper is indeed at the same time a present-day meal with Jesus and a guarantee, a seal, a foretaste 
of a greater feast to come. So I pray this morning that we would all enjoy communion with our triune God and with one another in this meal today and through all eternity. And beloved, all who believe and come will enjoy that communion. We will. We'll enjoy it in just a moment right here in this gym in a small Christian school in the country roads of Mount Joy. But we'll enjoy communion with the Savior and King of the universe right here today. And one day we'll enjoy that feast in a much better place in the eternal kingdom where we will be the people of God enjoying the presence of God for all eternity. Amen. Say, come quickly, Lord Jesus.